John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 378.TI0301, certificate number 35498, Dragnet. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. In a moment, the results of that trial. Do you have TV cops you like? Do you you grow up watching cop shows? Of course. Starsky and or Hutch? Yeah, the problem with Starsky and Hutch is that I look like a Hutch, but I always wanted to be Starsky. You feel like you're on the inside, you're a Starsky? Yeah, but on the outside, I'm a Hutch. Same with with Ponch and John. You know, I, I wanted to be Ponch. But I was John. Uh, no, you've kind of got the paunch now. Got a little bit of paunch. It was the same with the. I, I, I didn't really watch um, Dukes of Hazard. Not a I, cop show, by the but way. I definitely the sheriff's wanted the to bad be the, guy. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted to be the small, dark guy, and I always was the big, blonde guy. Every time we played those games in the street, I mean, usually in in over history, being a big blonde guy has paid off. Yeah, but when it comes to like cop show partnerships. I don't know. The big blonde guy is kind of the dope. Uh, do you actually have, I'm trying to think what cop shows. I, I mean, cop shows are kind of, my parents in the this golden age of TV, when they could get any TV show they wanted on streaming or DVD and they could just watch Breaking Bad or, or Game of Thrones or whatever it is, they just want to watch season after season of- Law and Order. Yeah. NCIS and Blue Bloods and they just want to watch Case of the Week- crime shows i don't watch any of those i don't either i feel like in college i watched a ton of law and order law and order i went through a phase i was extremely depressed after the uh second long winter's record and i spent about eight months just laying in bed and my mom at one point said if you're just gonna lay around all day you might as well watch law and order I like how that's her idea of productivity. You need to get something done. <laughs> well, what I was doing, I was writing my book about my walk across Europe that also never got published. But I lay there and watched Law and Order and found it very soothing. It was just, it was very I think much that's like- that's why the olds like it. They don't want something that, they don't want to have to sit and try to remember what was happening on the last Better Call Saul or the last Game of Thrones. No, it was like a Latin mass. You want to immediately know- like, this is just going to be like every other week. 
It would be funny if the next Long Winter's record was just full of Law and Order references. Dun dun dun. Jack McCoy, dun, dun, dun. you're the best district attorney. Uh, but I, it's worth not. No, let me think about the the cops that I cared about. Hill Street Blues. I loved Hill Street Blues when it came out. I mean, I was what twelve years old. And it was gritty and real and cool, and it was an ensemble cast, which was a, a real contrast to like Magnum PI. Yeah, it felt it felt kind of cutting edge. It did. Like, who are all these people? And then you get to know them all, and and really, you know, you really like them. Um, but no, and you know, the thing about Dragnet is it was, it was in reruns. It was much older TV. It was like Hawaii Five O. It was on TV. Oh, I watched a ton. I just remembered I watched a ton of Hawaii Five O. Yeah, it was. It was very much still there in the kind of the boomer hangover that the culture was for us Generation Xers. But I wasn't. I didn't respond to Dragnet very well, and it, partly it was just that that there's so so little of the lead actor. There's so little charisma there for a kid, you know. There, that sort of like just the facts, ma'am, did not excite me as much as, for instance, Colonel Hogan did and his rowdy bunch. But the show was a huge hit. You're right, despite kind of the, uh, and that's typical of the show that it has kind of a that the main characters are not over the top. Cards and and uh, Harry eccentrics. Morgan was on that show, right? In the six, late sixties version, yes. Uh, Jack Webb's sidekick is is uh, this the future Colonel, Colonel Potter. Potter. Uh, he plays Bill Gannon, the sidekick. Also, not like what you think of as like super sexy or charismatic person. No, the show is designed for the cops to be kind of laconic by the book. It's no coincidence that just the facts, man, is the catchphrase everybody remembers, even though. I don't know if he ever said that in so many words. And they were always busting hippies, and I mean, they were unhip, right? That's the late '60s one. So here's the here's the weird history of Dragnet. Uh, it was a radio show starting in the late '40s. It always was, with Jack Webb. Yeah, Jack Webb was not just the star; he was the creator. He wrote many episodes. He directed, I believe, maybe all, like almost all the episodes. You're kidding? No, it was a real auteur production, which is crazy for a. <laughs> For a 50s procedural, right? I had no idea. I uh, thought he was just some, you know, some like actors, some actor that they found at the bottom of a barrel somewhere. No, like he came up with the idea in uh, in the 1940s, Jack Webb. Well, just to go back, let's go back to Jack Webb's childhood. Let's tell it this way. He's born in the Bunker Hill neighborhood. He grows up in the Bunker Hill neighborhood of LA, not a great part of town. Set that way back machine to all the way back. To all the way back. This has got to be like 1905 or something. How far are we going back? Well, so it says here he was born in 1920. So he's almost exactly the same age as my dad. Just oh, one there year we older go. than my dad. Okay, this will help you out with that. Yeah. Uh, his dad, however, uh, biological did not bother. His dad left at a young age, oh boy. leaving Jack constantly for the rest of his life looking for jerky, tough male role models, hmm. uh, if we want to psychoanalyze some the cig- cigar chomping uh guys that can work with their traditional hands. authority filled white men right that's what the hole in his life and webb was always he's a, i think he's a short guy like he always looks short on tv and i think in real life i mean in fact he looks short in the movies he's really short <laughs> and he was so he was a kind of a shrimpy asthmatic kid he really wanted to 
fight in World War II, but got a desk job. I mean, life is a series of, of frustrations for Jack Webb, who is not the tough guy he wants to be. Right. Uh, when he gets into announcing and then acting, he's um, in the 40s, he's a, he's a radio actor on a show called, it's some kind of detective show called Pat Novak for Hire. It's a radio detective drama. So this is coming out of the noir era, or or in the midst of the noir era, where there are a lot of hard bitten private eyes. And but they are private eyes; they are not cops. Oh, I see. So here's an interesting thing: like we kind of think that uh, we kind of assume that the old timey view of cops is that they are uh, good eggs, neighborhood guys on the beat. Everybody loved cops. And it's only in the post-counterculture world that we have a more cynical view of law enforcement. They were like uh, Sean Connery in The Untouchables, just out spinning a billy club, walking on the bridge. Uh, taking an apple from a fruit stand. Yeah. No, asking the guy, uh, why are you packing heat? And it turns out that is, like many of these kinds of uh, lost cause kinds of nostalgia, it's, right, it's, it's make America com- great again. completely revisionist. Uh, if you look at... I mean, for one thing... Nobody likes cops. <laughs> for one thing, it's kind of a modern invention. No American city had a, like a full-time city-paid, city-subsidized police force until like the 1840s. Oh, really? Yeah. Like Before it, that, it was just... Um, there was a constable and informal night watch, which was you know effectively one of these neighborhood watches where a bunch of probably drunk volunteers... Sure, they're just there to light the torches if a dragon comes. <laughs> right. Well, it's probably more like gambling and prostitution. It's it's whatever the early 19th century ideas of vice are. Well, everybody's in favor of those. And in fact, you know, there there is a historical case to be made, which you're seeing more and more often, that the real historical antecedents for today's modern urban police departments are slave patrols. Right. Like a bunch of guys riding around trying to make sure nobody's running away from the plantation. It is interesting to... Um, uh, in light of recent events, uh, as the conversation switched to <clears throat> not just the idea of reforming police as uh, as it stands, like you know, instituting more sensitivity training or whatever, but really rethinking the role of police. It's we're talking about divestment of police yeah, as, as a serious movement. Why do we have them in such plenitude? It, yeah, because we're living in a time when. They dominate city governments. They take up half of city budgets often. Right. They're uh, everywhere. The and often elected officials seem to be basically enthralled to their, to but, their moods. But and the relationship of, of people in a city, it's really, it's, uh, it's super colored by your relationship to police, right? Are you obeying the traffic signals because you believe in, in order and good citizenship? Good. Or are you behave, are you, uh, are you following them because you're looking around for a cop? And that's true of so much of the way we conduct ourselves now. And I think the suggestion that if we weren't being monitored by the police, that we would generally do the right thing, you know, that comes up against the kind of scoffing, um, like whatever essentialist argument that, that, uh, law and order types make that we're all, we're all evil and without cops, it would We're just be... We're all just one thin blue line away from Lord of the right. Flies. That's right. They're just going to kick down your door and and uh, steal all your vegetables if it weren't for this thin blue line. But of course, as you're saying, policing 
is a fairly recent yeah when you hear that when you hear that you think wait is there something arbitrary and then you might think well, yeah why is it every problem i have with living in a city my the first thing i do is call somebody with a gun and maybe a bunch of tactical gear in his trunk i mean is that and a walkie-talkie like is is that the kind of person who should be doing every kind of need i handle my first line of defense for every kind of need i have in a, in a way it's the same or it's a it's in the family of arguments that the only reason we're it's it's a kind of um it's a religious argument the only reason we're good is that there's a god who is dictating punishment to us and a god that's watching an omniscient god and without that and without the promise of heaven and the threat of hell without inst- the institution of religion there's absolutely no reason that we would be self-governing there's no there is no justification for morality right like how can a secular humanist um have morality and you and this uh, this is a, this is an argument that's made all the time right and and as a secular humanist you're kind of always being asked or, you know, you're kind of forced to answer the question, why be good? Where do my ethics come from if not from a, a book? So that argument that we need cops and that the thin blue line is all that protects us from anarchy is basically a, like an argument against secularism or or rather a, a realist argument um, that there's, that, that humans are, I mean, it's a Hobbesian argument. It's a fallen world. Right. But but in fact, I think that you see among secular humanists a tremendous sort of, I mean, it, it's the ethics that became what you would describe as the um, the foundational documents of this country right. and the, 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 the whole idea of the rights of man and law. Those aren't really founded in... I mean, deism at, at, at the best, right? You don't get them from a scriptural text. You right. look around and see that God has clearly given them to everyone, and therefore we must act accordingly. Right. So so our Enlightenment ideals are precisely the things that would, that would, um, that would, like, not necessitate a bunch of cops. And I have no idea how it works in practicality. Like, let's say you try to say, we're going to rebuild cities from the ground up. And at that point, do you start to say, well, I guess you do need somebody you need to call when there's been property crime or violent crime. But, well, I guess there you do need somebody. I mean, would you just end up reinventing police? I think what you end up doing is that the, the argument uh, that... There, there, there was somebody suggested to me the other day that that um, in ancient China there was some precedent for civil service jobs to all be you citizens would apply for a civil service job, and that job would include police, park rangers, administrators, teachers, um, all the jobs that a that a government would fund and support, and then based on your application the state would determine which job they needed filled and which job you had an aptitude for. 
I think we still do that, but just everyone with a third grade reading level becomes a cop. Well, no, what the people that become a cop are the ones that really want to do that kind of it's, stuff. It's just like politics. They want to bonk heads. I mean, a, a lot of the people who go for those jobs are the last ones who should have it because yeah. they're, they're reasons. I mean, the, the politicians are all narcissists and the cops are all, uh, well, so imagine bullies. this, imagine this, if everyone that worked at the DMV became a cop and all the cops worked at the DMV, you would get through that DMV really fast. You would get in there, you'd get that registration. There'd be no lines because there'd be all these angry cops back there. Like, come on, next. Angrily stamping things. Yes, here's your license. Ma'am, I said 96. Would you get up here? And then all the Ma'am, I need you to comply. I need you to step up to the desk. You're number 96. All the people that are at the DMV who are like, (sighs) and they pick up a piece of paper and they walk really slowly all the way across and they put it in an envelope and they walk really slowly back. If they were the cops and you were like, hey, someone stole my bubble gum and they're like, I'll be over there in a minute. Would be a much more peaceful world. So the surprising part about our view of cops then and now is that uh, for much of the late nineteenth into the early twentieth century, there were two main stereotypes about cops. And they were it, Irish, and it was not. <laughs> it was not that they were. It wasn't they were Irish, but it was not that they were the heroic uh, first responders and the best our society has to offer. The two kinds of cops you saw back then, the two troops for cops, was they're bumblers. Right. They're buffoons, you know, like um, in detective fiction, it would be like the, the Scotland Yard guy that's clueless until Sherlock Holmes sets him right. right. Or in Keystone Cops, Clouseau. literally like cartoonish characters in silly uniforms, right? Big shoes. And then the second stereotype was they're corrupt as hell. Right. They're, they're just the worst people. This was how cops were portrayed in fiction. And it was, again, because of detective fiction— the detective has to be the the private eye has to be the the force of righteousness, you know the right. the Philip Marlowe like knight on his horse in a fallen world. And if you read anybody, Chandler especially, every cop he meets, there's the pair. I mean, he he used to be he used to have some Philip Marlowe had some law enforcement jobs, so occasionally he meets a cop he knows. But these are the exceptions and not the rule. Other than that, there's always a dumb one and a mean one, and. And that, that's the way that we think about the state, kind of. It's either incompetent the, or cruel. Yeah, or the both. state is dumb and mean, right? Because because every time the state has a rule that you encounter, it's usually that you've come up against the rule. The state has tons of rules about farming that I'm never going to know because I don't come up against them. But I'm going to be really mad about um, the zoning of my, you know, back forty. And in the state's defense. A lot of those laws you know nothing about are probably benefiting you. Like you, you never see the laws that help you. Well, including you just see the laws that annoy you, including the law that come, I would come up against and, and annoys me. It's helping a lot of other people. <laughs> right. Uh, it's you know it's keeping me at bay. That's I the guess. thing about NIMBYism is it's the inability to say, look, this is inconvenient for me, but it might be for the greater good. Right. Um, but in Chandler, I don't think he. I was looking to see if he ever had run-ins with law enforcement in his life. And I don't think he did. The only thing I can find is the the suicide. He spent much of his life as a depressive alcoholic. The suicide attempt is the only time I'm aware of uh, him, him being part. Yeah, the cops actually being called on Raymond Chandler. Um, but whatever, maybe it's just the the conventions of his genre. But he had a very jaundiced view of law enforcement. A lot of his uh, stories and novels take place in a fictional city called Base. I mean, even in L.A., 
all the cops he meets are dumb or corrupt. But many of his stories take place in a fictional municipality called Bay City, which is just a den of vice, uh, uh, boats out to the offshore gambling, all the prostitution and gambling you want. Is it based Uh, on San Francisco? It's based on Santa Monica, actually. The worst. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which maybe was even worse in the, a different kind of worst in the 30s than it is today. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and and in Santa Monica, basically the, uh, the criminals aren't just paying off the cops. They have essentially bought the town right? Uh, in, in Chandler's it's, work. It's true to this day, except it's Snapchat. <laughs> in maybe his best novel, The Long Goodbye, the novel ends. I just happened to read this last week. I noticed that you were reading uh, it. Ends, I was on a road trip and I brought the Library of America collection of Chandler novels and it ends with him saying, you know, I never saw any of these people again. Except for the cops. We haven't figured out a way to get rid of them. Like, that's how the book ends. <laughs> like, and so this is the subtext of so much of our art, and especially our popular art, detective fiction, for decades. Yeah. That the police are just awful. They're not doing any good. And a lot of it comes out of real-life corruption that was happening in American city police departments at the time, where most of your interactions with a crime with a cop was going to be having to slip somebody a $5 bill at a traffic stop or having the dirty cop who comes to collect his envelope every week at your dad's bar. Uh, That's very true. When I, when I have traveled widely in the past before coronavirus clipped all our wings, you know, if you go, if you, it doesn't take long to, to find a place where the cops are corrupt and not corrupt in the way that they are in Seattle, where you just feel like they're, morals are corrupted or their, their sense of their job is corrupted, corrupted at a level. But I'm talking about corrupt where it's like, Hey, how much money can I make from this job on the side this week? Right. That guy just stole my watch and the cop holds out his hand and says, what's that mean to me? You know, that I've encountered that plenty of different places in the world enough to know that it's intrinsic to the authority. I think if you, if you give someone a gun or a billy club and say, you're in charge of this border crossing or this set of streets, if there's not a institution um, that keeps you, if there's not a, a moral institution that keeps you in check, it, it seems that that's a kind of a corrupting, um, those epaulets are corrupting. So that brings us to 1948, when Jack Webb, our sad fatherless man, is playing the lead in this radio show. He plays a hard-boiled San Francisco waterfront detective, Sam Spade type, called Pat Novak. Pat Novak for hire. And he, uh, while he's doing that show, he does a movie called He Walked by Night. He has a small role as some kind of a police forensic tech of some kind. And He Walked by Night is actually very good. It's kind of a semi-documentary. It's very early kind of semi-documentary film actually filmed in real locations with kind of a gritty based on a real police case vibe. Uh, it's got a, this, the finale is set in the sewers of LA and it predates the kind of the similar set piece at the end of the third man. And while Jack Webb is working on that movie, he gets in a conversation with the movie's police advisor, an LAPD guy named Marty Wynn, who finds out that he's the guy on this hard boiled Pat Novak show. Oh, And he's like, buddy, you're on that. That, that show is, that show's terrible. Like none of the crime stuff is real. Like none of the way the mystery gets solved is real. The view of cops is wrong. The way evidence is ha- like, you guys don't know what you're doing. Like, 
like I I do ten more interesting cases than that every week. Why aren't you using real cases? And this conversation really sticks with Webb, and that's the genesis of Dragnet. What if I could start a show where I actually did use the cops' actual case files, and it seemed kind of realistic, like this "He Walked by Night" movie I'm working Ripped on from the headlines. Yes, uh, sixty years on no, well, not sixty, but fifty years before Law and Order. Uh, ripping real cases from the headlines. And if nothing else, it's easier, right? Sure. You don't have to come up with some elaborate uh, Chandler-esque uh, criminal plot each week because... It's right there in the police blotter. The police blotter's full of stuff but like But also, this. if you got the cops to buy in on this, they could, you know, they could do the heavy lifting for you and say every week, call you up and say, hey, here's a good one. Well, that's what happens. So in 1949, the very next year, Dragnet debuts on the radio... And it's a huge hit. And within three years, it makes the move to TV. I think it might be the first kind of action show of that kind to go to TV. And then two years after that, in 54, it's the first TV show to become a movie. There's a Dragnet theatrical film. I had no idea that it was so early in the... I always think of it as a 60s thing. That's because those are the ones in reruns, the later color shows. But early... Early in television, you're saying? Yeah, the original show runs, I think, 52 to 59. Was there a cop show before, or is that the first cop show? There were other police shows, but this was the one that people took seriously, critically. This one had a veneer of realism. And it's it's what we remember about Dragnet today, that that it's kind of got the TikTok of an investigation. We were working the day watch out of homicide. Right. A 438 came in, or, you know, the numbered... All the police lingo and the jargon, the uh, the fact that it takes place in a, an actual city. It's it's specifically, you know, this is Lo- this is Los Angeles, right? And then th- that it begins with uh, the events you were about to see are real. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Bah, right. Bah, 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 bah. And this was you know kind of a, a a quality a seal of quality that had not been seen on radio or TV. So this thing wins uh, Emmys for best mystery or action series for three years in a row. Um, it's an enormous hit. And and as it's running, uh, the relationship between Jack Webb and the LAPD starts to get cozier and cozier. Um, of course. Because in 1950, a man named William H. Parker is promoted from internal affairs to become the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, which is a position he will hold for the next 15 or 16 years. And he reinvents the LAPD, like until the 90s, like up, up through the Rodney King OJ era, the LAPD headquarters was called the Parker Center huh. um, because he took one of these provincial cop on the take police departments and he wanted to professionalize it. LAPD. He was going to modernize the LAPD and to some degree... It was a success. Um, he was a he was a kind of a, a leathery Westerner. I think he's from South Dakota originally. Just one of these kind of tall, laconic uh, men of his time. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jack Webb is all over that. Mm-hmm. He's he's the father he never had. Uh, and uh, in order to professionalize and modernize the police department, that involves getting rid of the penny ante corruption. But it kind of involves creating a modern bureaucracy that really gives us a lot of the police problems we have today. Right. Because when you do that, when you create this massive um, institution, 
I mean, first of all, what ended up happening is it ended up empowering police unions because my bet noir everybody's bet noir <laughs> because you know they were the ones who were you know the, the cops at the time were unhappy with the these new restrictions on their autonomy right um but then suddenly you know police unions have kind of turned into a, a, a their own kind of corruption and impediment to change and yeah reform. i mean they cloaked themselves in the in the language and the trappings of the labor movement but then cops are strike breakers not right. not like Labor. Police unions are <laughs> fundamentally different from teachers unions or any yeah. other kind of union. And, right. Uh, mostly in the fact that Republicans like them. That's the, that's the main right. difference Don't between like teachers, that's police right. unions and everybody else, every other kind of union. But, but the bureaucracy also, uh, I mean, it, what, in what other ways did it foster a, a new kind of bad well, police? Well, one problem is you want to demonstrate that this is effective, that your new method is actually cleaning up the city. Right. And so when you've got cops that really want to clean up the streets, that's when... They're finding problems. That's when cops get aggressive. That's when... And, and the, the ethos of the Parker Air LAPD was very much, we own these streets. Confront and command. We stop crimes before they happen. You know, it's, it's all kind of... At the time, it would have sounded like, yeah... Yeah, this is what we need. But now now it sounds vaguely dystopian. It's broken windows policing, but but pre pre the broken window. Yes. And there's a guy in a white lab coat uh with an IBM mainframe in the basement somewhere who's who's got printouts proving that all of this is suppressing crime. It's scientific. Um I mean on the streets it turns into excessive force complaints, of course. But but there's this idea that we're using the most Modern methods, and this is what Dragnet. This is how Dragnet gets dragged into this whole thing. Blue um, Thunder. They 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 authorize Blue Thunder. <laughs> Wait, Blue Thunder the helicopter? Yeah. <laughs> wow, I had no idea. <laughs> now I like them. Did they have Airwolf? Uh, the uh, at 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 first, as Dragnet gets going, um, Jack Webb's new police contacts are are suggesting plot ideas. He, he offers a hundred dollars for every cop who can who can give him a case, who can suggest a, describe a case that'll become an episode. Well, there must have been cops lined up around the block. Oh yeah. If you give a cop a hundred dollar bill, he'll do anything. <laughs> but the, uh, the Parker era office of public information decides to take over this. Oh yeah. Like we want you to run all scripts through us. Um, you know, once to check for accuracy and then, you know, later just final approval. And the show starts to become very dependent on LAPD, because as it goes to TV, suddenly they can't just do it in a in a studio where it's like clop 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 clop. Sir, come in. You know they actually need cars and right. props, and so if they want the use of all this LAPD stuff and insignia, they're, the 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 police department needs to pass off on this. Now, in early years, was it at all critical, or or did it have a did it have any kind of critical take that got? they got muted or watered down by this, or was it always 100% pro cop? And now it just, a lot of the pro cop stuff is kind of implicit. And that's true in all these procedural shows, right? At the, the for, for one thing, we take for granted that the cops are the protagonists, right? This isn't a story about this uh, woman who got beat by her husband. This isn't a story about this guy who embezzled. It's, it's a story, story of these cops. Yeah, the that protagonist figured it out. Yeah, who figured it out. So, and, and also the fact that it has to conclude in an arrest, and in a moment, the results of that trial right. uh, means that every crime gets solved quickly and efficiently in in fifty two minutes or whatever. So, there's a lot of just biases to the form that are that are pro police without having to have any 
overt propaganda. But if the LAPD has script control, like, did it yeah, become pretty the propag- jingoistic? Yes, the propaganda started to creep in. So throughout the 50s, Dragnet is the biggest show on TV. There's even a number one. It, it, it spawns two hit albums. One is the ba-ba-ba. Um, but, uh, sure, I play that every night when I, as I uh, seduce my new lover. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it's, 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 very, it's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> but also there was a, a parody called St. George and the Dragonette, which was kind of a what if this hard-boiled cop narration, but uh, applied to like a fairy tale. It was a Stan Freeberg novelty song. Boy, that's the kind of humor you don't get anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's, that would, I don't think that would be a million-selling album today if it was like, what if Breaking Bad, but... What does 2020 mean for small businesses? You have to do more with less. Suddenly, every single hire is critical, but there are fewer resources to find the right people. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time. There are no long-term contracts. And the site has powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are three and a half times more likely than regular listings to result in a hire. In fact, 73% of online job seekers visit Indeed.com each month. They're going to get you the people you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses in the past. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com omnibus. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. At first, Parker is a little skeptical of how much, how involved the department should be with this fictional version of itself. But then people at conventions start calling him Joe Friday. They're like, oh, you're from LAPD? Hey, Joe Friday. And he realizes his, his organization now has a nationwide... Right. reputation and people are associating him with this cool just the facts ma'am crime solver and that's when he decides uh this is something we can use so for i think for uh, several seasons the show actually films at LAPD police headquarters huh and even when they they leave they they actually uh, they use LAPD blueprints to build just a, a replica of the police department on a soundstage with every desk where it should be and the same doorknobs, uh, and so so accuracy becomes very important. And this is creatively, it's it's a big calling card for the show. Yeah, you're going to see how actual police work happens. Um, but for LAPD, it's a coup because everybody's talking about how great they are. Must have been a recruitment tool. It's, so it's huge with recruitment. Uh, Jack Webb, even though he's not a cop, he starts sitting on like different civilian panels for officer candidates. <laughs> really? Yeah, like as if he's a cop. And then at the time of his death, uh, he was actually given a police funeral. I mean, this is like Tom uh, Clancy cosplay, the way that he became a CIA. Uh, I mean, they, they he's got an Air Force hat on. Yeah, so. they basically gave him a, a junior G-man badge. And they literally gave Jack Webb a badge number. They retired badge number, uh, I think it's 714. Um 
which was the badge number that Joe Friday wore on the show. So huh. to this day, there's no LAPD cop with badge number 714 because Jack Webb was- They pinned it on him when they put him in. buried with full police <laughs> honors. <laughs> wow. Just because this little kid with asthma was- uh, uh, and, uh, and you know, whatever Parker wanted, he got, uh, in 1953, he demanded that the show stop saying cop because there was kind of a movement from J. Edgar Hoover down to, to, uh, get rid of these kind of terms that seemed to be anti-police. So we've been saying cop this whole show. And I, and I was aware of it at one point today feeling like, is that still considered a slur? Because I've had police in the course of my life tell me that cop is a is a term that, uh, that they think is abusive. Do they know we have better, more abusive terms for them? Yeah, we do. But, <laughs> but like cop is, is um, I think what it, what it was, I guess, is that that's not the term that you choose if you're being respectful. Cop. Hey, cop. Oh, here's what it is. They, they actually would use, uh, police departments around the country would use Dragnet episodes as training. Wow. Okay, notice when he comes in the apartment. Like, what's the first thing he does? That's right. No uh, kidding. Yeah, like, look for, yeah. And so they would they would use, because there were no training films, right. and Dragnet took a lot of pride in, in duplicating real police procedure. So affected how police procedure evolved. Yeah, and you mentioned Tom Clancy, and I think it is kind of the birth of this new kind of art where... Character development is not important. It's very similar that matters. Yeah, it, and it's kind of the just the complexity, the density of the world that gets created. Like you get a, a wash in in jargon and procedure, right. and you just kind of enjoy that on its own merits. I think it leads to this kind of art that maybe I would call competency porn, where you just kind of you enjoy the idea of there's this whole world of people who are really good at their jobs and they're and they're somehow they're keeping us safe yeah and you see it in tom clancy i think tom clancy techno thrillers are absolutely a descendant of that where you you just love kind of feeling like you're in the room with these superheroes keeping right. us safe but take it, us to seven nine two four nine under that people with niners saying niners a lot in a way it 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 feels a little bit like the solitaire and um sudoku games that we the kind of like infect us all at a certain level. I, I I was playing a game like that one time and and a friend of mine walked in and said, it's just like putting away the dishes. Like you're just sitting there doing, you're just doing the dishes over and over. Right. Like, why don't you just go do the dishes? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And he's like, yeah, it's, you're just doing this menial. But it's something about the way your brain evolved. Yeah. It, it wants that task and that complexity. And I think it leads to, it's not just techno thrillers. Like I almost think, uh, what are some other examples of this? Like even something like West Wing, you know, where you, you have the idea that there's these, these dedicated public servants that are, uh, that are going to make everything all right. Like it kind of leads to a, I mean, that's a, a, an unhelpful view of the real world. It's since, a great example since that show was, was simultaneous with an administration that was not like that at all. Right. It's kind of a liberal fantasy. Yeah. And it kind of leads to this kind of es escapism and this illusion that somehow out there, smart, efficient people are going to solve all these problems in ways that you and I can only enjoy third hand. Well, think about all the spy movies. I mean, Jason Bourne, even exactly. though he's rogue, he's good and he has incredible 
abilities. You see this trope even in things like heist movies, where the, all the fun is like, look at all the 12 things that happen at just the right time for, right. for Danny Ocean to do this. And that's not per, like, that just shows that we like the complexity. But it gets a little bit pernicious when it's applied to like real-world problems, right? right. Or uh, like we can trust the military because they, they have a lot of good jargon and complicated names for their cool names for their ordinance. It's one of the things that makes law and order seem like a cut above because there is a lot of hand wringing. It goes to the DA's office and there's, there's always some argument. Um, every once in a while they lose a case. There, there's that, there's that extra element where sometimes the cops are, um, are stymied or, you know, the young one that really wants to go in and punch it up is held back by the old one that's like, whoa, you know, let's walk down there. And It's hard to overstate how direct a descendant of Dragnet the Law & Order franchise is. Yeah. And the, the 2,000 episodes of Law & Order that you could that you could just start marathon watching right now on whatever it's... I'm sure in the future, Law & Order is still rerunning. It occurred to me as you were talking that I did used to watch Adam-12. Oh, that's funny. And Adam-12, I just looked up, was created by Jack Webb. Is that right? Yeah, it started in 1968, and it was, again, like LAPD, except the cops were young and handsome. When when the original Dragnet ended in 59, it was because Jack Webb was now too big for it, and he wanted to direct feature films. Uh, he was really one of the most powerful men in TV, and I guess create other TV shows like... Like Adam Paul, but the show Dragnet kept running and was a huge hit in reruns huh. to the degree that uh, uh, that a, a revival in the late '60s was almost inevitable. And the funny thing is, now in '67 to '69, that those are the color episodes you often see rerun with Harry Morgan. Yeah, and those are much less just about kind of the TikTok of a of a single investigation. On the old show, the names I think it might be the first show that did this. The title of the show was always the big something. The big oh. heist, the big uh, boss, the, the big whatever, like right. kind of like how Friends is always the ones with Rachel's hair, exactly, yeah. And uh, and the new show is a little bit; it's quite different. It's um, it's more about it's less about one particular crime and more about the social context of the late '60s. And the funny thing is that even in a kind of a post counterculture world. Jack Webb is still running around giving stern lectures about hippies yeah. and grass and uh, dope. There's a the bad guy is often some kid that's like, "Hey man, let me go, man. You got no right." And yeah, the there's all often uh, kind of bearded um, what al- alternative journalism types. There's a famous episode that's a debate where uh, Friday and I think Gannon get called in on this some kind of public access show to defend the police against this bearded uh, lefty Trotsky. journalist, right? Yeah. And his and who calls them the fuzz. And so they have to take all these combative questions. And of course they totally outfox them at every turn with the at every turn with their with their common sense explanations of how law enforcement is actually serves everyone and doesn't have a particular agenda. Yeah, man, but what about when the fuzz come down on like like honest working people, man. Uh, there's one black character in this episode, a a uh, a caricature called Mambo Mabanda. Sure, of course. Of the Black Widow Party, who Good says Mambo Mabanda. I just want to ask what all you honkies are going to do about you know, and of course, um, 
Jack Webb settles him down and says that the cops have, have no beef with the black community. That's right. The problem with this is it's three years after the Watts riots. Um, Dragnet, as such a successful view of successful and popular and favorable portrayal of the LAPD, really did rewrite these earlier stereotypes of, of cops being dumb and corrupt. We got to see them being modern and effective and fair. Right. And tailored. Yeah. This was a, this is a clean, efficient police department. Um, William H. Parker in one, in one book I read, I don't know if this claim is true, but it actually says that uh, Gene Roddenberry wrote speeches for, for William H. Parker and based the character of Spock on him because he was such a cool, laconic, scientific thinker. Right. That Spock was based on the LA police chief. But in fact, this was concealing a real problem. Um, Sure, a lot of Dragnet viewers, even ones in LA, would have agreed that that was how the police department was. They didn't have any trouble. They weren't, they didn't have to pay anybody off. But this is because they were middle class white people. Right. Um, Black and Mexican Angelinos would have, even in the 50s, would have had a very different story to tell about the Parker era command, confront and command cops on the street. Sure. Um, and so in 1965, this all bubbled up into the, well, I mean, so there were anti scenes. Like in 1952, like within, I think this is just like a week after the first Dragnet aired, LAPD had its infamous Bloody Christmas, where like 40 drunk cops beat up all these Mexican kids. And it was like, it was simultaneous with Dragnet going on the air. And, uh, and then the 65 Watts riots, of course, that ended with 34 people dead, 1,000 injured, 3,500 arrests. And people kind of had to confront the idea that the LAPD was not what they had been sold on Dragnet. Well, it set in motion the whole culture of Los Angeles, you know, the the culture of Watts and Compton and all the, the neighborhoods in LA and the anti the uh you know the the tension there. It leads to Rodney King. It, I mean you could there's a straight line through to so many things today. Like these are not problems that got solved after the Watts riots. I'm grateful obviously. to them for NWA. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. If, if it weren't for you, like Ice Cube would probably be working at a mini mart. Uh, at least he didn't have to use his AK. Uh, one of the, one of the, in the fifties era, you were asking for examples of Parker putting actual propaganda on the air. He became increasingly worried, not just about the worst of the use of the word cop, but about civil rights rulings starting to cramp his department. Right, because although most of that was focused on on the South and voting rights, it it applied to everybody. A lot of them were California court cases about illegal wiretapping or tainted right. evidence or, you know, all the kinds of shortcuts that police would do, which ends, I'm sure, in a lot of Daryl Gates era evidence planting and yeah. You know, the, the stuff that really wouldn't surprise you about the LAPD of our lifetimes. Well, there was probably a lot of evidence, even more evidence planting at the time. It just never, it, it, when, the, when the judge discovered it in, the, in, in his chambers, he was like, well, sure, planted, but. So within a week of one of these uh, high court rulings that so disturbed Chief Parker, uh, I think specifically about an illegal wiretap, uh, there is a Dragnet episode called The Big Ruling in which Friday gets his man and... Uh, um, overly sentimental liberal judge throws out the arrest, and nobody can. Be- none of these good cops can believe it. Oh but, wow! But sir, how much, 
How much more crime is there going to be because of this awful ruling? Well, that's true, you know? So there was explicitly anti-civil rights... Uh, and there was no voice episodes. in the show that was like, that's the American way, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Uh in the 50s episodes, there probably is some of that, you know, but insofar as there is a point of view, it's often very much that, you know, the greater good is served by right. just letting cops do their thing. And what, um, so they were really ripped from the headlines that immediately? Something could happen and and they would have an episode about it in a in a week's time? From what I read, that, that TV episode is actually based on a radio episode that aired Earlier, so I, I think while the the case was going through its various levels of appeals, they had the, a script. The and- LA Office of Public Information was like, "Hey, you know it would make a great show," right. and now it's the most popular show on TV, and it's telling everybody that um, judges just need to lay off and let LA cops do their thing because they know who's really guilty. Right. That's how we lost the war in Vietnam. So, really, this is a uh, you know this single show which we kind of think of as a as a funny signifier with its catchphrases and its music like it really turned on its head for many years the american idea of what cops are and in fact it's got a legacy that still exists like the uh you know in prestige tv now the protagonists are often touchy grumpy don't play by the book anti-heroes right but millions more people are watching the the scientific uh, clean-cut exploits of the CSI guys or NCIS or, you know, all these shows where... They put one fingernail clipping in and they can tell the guy's eye color. And the cops are still solving a case every 54 minutes and none of them are dirty because that would be a different kind of show. That would be a serialized show if, if a cop was actually dirty or conflicted or troubled. Right. Um, for the shows to just be kind of be interchangeable, the reason my folks watch them, for them to be exactly the same every week, the cops all kind of have to be efficient, unimpeachable robots. What's interesting about the 20th century is that it was a period where mechanization, industrialization, the 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 rise of the bureaucracy, the entire century was given over to attempting to use those methods to streamline government and society and what it produced was the holocaust and it produced you know like a lot of dehumanization but in a lot of cases like the rise of bureaucracy produced a the kind of functional like representative democracies that that could have 350 million people in them Violence was already happening, but with a bureaucracy, boy, you can really you can really, you can really do a lot more of it per hour. Really drill down on it, right? But we still kind of live in a in in the fantasy that technology is the thing that's going to rescue us from our baser human natures. And now it's uh, we're I think coming out of a period where we thought that the internet was going to bring about a utopia, but but for many many years we're. For, for the last hundred, I would argue, we're looking for utopia in the, in the form of process. If we can just streamline the process, then the utopia waits for us on the other side. It's not 
that we're nothing, nothing yet. Yeah, nothing has to be reinvented. No, and and we're not trying to be enlightened. Yeah. Our, we're not opening our hearts. We're not trying to be better. We're just trying to be streamlined. What we need is inefficiency, right? Maybe that's that's, that's my watchword. If we <laughs> if we could just stop idolizing these efficient cops and and needing the kind of Com- complexity of fake problem solving in our brain. I want just, you to remember. If we could just all put down our Sudoku and mm. and uh, and pick up our vape pens. I'm going to remind you of this the next time you show up here, and I haven't done all my research on my show yet. <laughs> and that concludes Dragnet entry three seven eight dot ti zero three zero one certificate number three five four nine eight. In the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings, cop lover, and at John Roderick, hashtag justice. Direct action works, you guys. That's the only thing that works. That's right. Rose Twitter up there, y'all. No justice, no peace. Um, I'm also on Instagram, under my name at John Roderick, where it is 100% sexy times. Most of the time these days, it's a selfie where I'm covered in mud and holding up some thing I found in a creek. What makes it sexy is the Dragnet theme playing? No, it's me. I'm the one ah, that makes I it see. sexy. Somebody commented on the, the other day that my Instagram feed had too many selfies, and I looked back and it didn't have too many selfies. That's exactly the right number of selfies. There's not enough slugs in your creek, so. Too many snails, not enough slugs. Um, you can email us, and please do, at theomnibusproject at gmail.com, where Ken will read your email. Uh, and now, increasingly, it's Mindy that reads the emails and then sends them on to us. She does a lot of, uh, she does a lot of our, our bookkeeping, you know, to, to make sure uh, communicating with Patreon supporters who have earned their little perks. She deletes all the marriage proposals. To, I, to you? I got a wonderful marriage proposal the other day. From Mindy. Uh, not from Mindy. No, she's she she recognizes that she's she's cloven to you forever. No, it's uh, a, I, I was reached out to. I was reached out to. Boy, are you going to get married in the passive voice? <laughs> the passive voice is just infecting me lately. Is it's this really... bride, John Roderick, <laughs> taken by you? <laughs> so I hate it so much, and then when it comes out of my mouth, it just hits me like an anvil. No, a, a woman reached out and she said, "I and my lesbian partner." Uh, are wondering if we uh, if we propose marriage to you, do we have to uh, do we have to pay double to the Patreon, or can we get like a two for one deal? And now I feel like the three of us are we're gonna meet in Las Vegas, and Elvez is gonna marry us. Very I, exciting. I don't think I don't think I'm actually gonna. I think I'll be like an uncle, like a like a wise uncle. What if you're like their David Crosby? What I'll if, be their David Crosby. What if they want to have a kid? That's a great idea. I'm 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 super here for that. Uh, if you want to talk about this or anything else, if you want to talk about last week's episode about the Duke d'Anjou, where I really really struggled to figure out the line of succession between the Sun King and the, the current Spanish King. If you want John to send you long, uh, possibly inaccurate genealogy, I really should. Have, I really should have taken a very different tact on that show. I'm still I'm still. Uh, reeling from what a, what a half job I did. There are people who like to listen to the show to go to bed. Yeah, that's a good show for that. They have a perfect episode. Don't listen to that show when you're driving because 
if you find the word Alfonso to be very soothing, <laughs> th- yeah, then don't Henri. don't watch Silver Spoons while you drive, but listen to Omnibus when you go to bed at night. But if you want to talk about it, you can go on the Futurelings Facebook page. If you rightly think that Facebook is a is furthering the um, the fascistic Silicon Valley government enablers, the surveillance state. Uh, you can get off of uh, Facebook and go to Instagram, which is just as bad, if not worse. And you can get off of there and go to Twitter, which is awful, and we don't recommend it. And you can get off of there and go to Reddit, which is just as bad. So what I guess we're recommending is that you... Don't watch Dragnet reruns on Nick at Night. No, send us things in the mail. Send us your uh, your granddad's clothes. Send Ken your... your uh, 19th century religious tracks. Send me your your uh, your old sunglasses. Do you want to see what we got in the mail today? Yeah, what did you get over there? Our friend Mark, who sends us the watercolor postcards, did one of the Battle of Palmdale. He's wonderful. Let me Look see. Look at this F89J scorpion. What a great painting. Oh man. But you and this he's is very talented. He really is. I don't, I don't I feel bad that he's spending so much time on these postcards. Boy, I don't. I mean, we get to we get to put them on the Patreon so that I feel great about these. So that uh, supporters can see them. It's the thing about a watercolor. Um, wow, he's so good. Oh, man. Yeah. And he's in Norfolk, VA. I don't think you noticed, but he's got, he used a Project Mercury stamp. He's communicating to us through the stamps, Ken. <gasps> There's a stamp here. There's a pattern. There's Jim Thorpe, the football player. There's the Atlantic Cable Centenary stamp, the 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 undersea cable across the Atlantic. There's Communications for Peace, which is a um, like a a stamp about a communication satellite, and the Coast and Geodetic Survey stamp. Those stamps are very omnibus. They are so omnibus. He's got there's 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 more to what's going on here than meets the eye. They're secret messages. Mark Schoenberger's got some some story to tell. And do you have a fan named Jade who likes to send you fan art? Yeah, Jade from uh, from formerly from Seattle, now of Portland, Oregon. I have a series of portraits I hear of you that oh, you will look at those. Those are enjoy. wonderful. She's also an incredible artist and graphic designer. So these are her pencil art, which then she turns into lovely digital uh, portraits of you. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, where are her portraits of Ken? Sadly, no portraits of me, unless uh, I can take... She sent your daughter a ton of stuff, uh, including some paper dolls, if you want to put clothes on a civet or a turtle. Who wouldn't? These are pretty cool. And she drew you a heron of some kind. And she drew and framed you a walrus based on a uh, some kind of Twitter exchange you had about, I am the walrus. I am the walrus. So here's a ton of John Roderick portraits. I mean, I would like to hang them up at my house, but I know you're going to want to have a a full wall of them at your house. And she sent your daughter a birthday present, which I'm not going to open because... Really? Because it's in a a beautifully be-ribboned box. A birthday present, but your birthday has has, uh, been more recent than my daughter's. It seems like Jade is maybe more of a John Roderick fan than an Omnibus fan. Come on, that can't possibly be true. How many hours a day do you th- does she spend drawing you on a on a just an average weekday? Well, you're the one looking at those. You tell me. Well, so I I sit and stare at you very often for hours at a time, and yeah. I have drawn. Do you know how many portraits you have drawn? Zero. Can that be true? I think it's zero. 
Whereas so, Jade, who does not sit and stare at you, right, has sent uh, several hundred. She she knows my face better than yours. Let me just recommend her. Her name is Jade Gordon. Her her Twitter account is Jade Gordon, and she's a wonderful graphic artist. These paper dolls are delightful. I like them because they don't have any pictures of you. But look yeah. how fun! Look at these fun clothes you could put on this civet. Yeah, that's excellent. She did a she did a comic book once um, of a long story I told about falling in love with a prostitute in Amsterdam. Ended up being one of my favorite things that's ever been done. But she didn't continue it as a... Was it, be- was it better than the actual it was. relationship? <laughs> it was. The actual relationship was was fraught, but um, but the comic book was not fraught. I would read it again. Yeah. Oh, so it, continuing on... Did you do the Patreon? I can't you can, uh, you can mail us things like these things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And if you like the show and if you like the long outros, or even if you don't like the long outros, you can support... What if that was your new band? The long, long outros. outros. Mm. It's pretty good. You can uh, support the show with your uh, your contribution, your monetary contribution, uh, your little bag of pesetas. Or you can just send me a $5 bill and my birthday card. That, that was my favorite piece of mail lately. If you give Ken $5, I don't get 250 of it, which seems unfair. Um, if you, you do, if you say it's for the show, if you say right. it's a birthday gift, no, I'm not splitting. If you send it to the show, send it to patreon.com slash omnibus project. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, if it turned into a massive police state takeover, I want you to know it was probably Jack Webb's fault. But we hope and pray that we survived this moment in our history. And in fact, that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Uh, But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to visit you in your police for Utopia soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.